Welcome to Le Arte dell'Arme, the Bolognese podcast where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition. Today's guest is Michael Chittister of Wichtenauer and Hema Bookshelf. podcast thanks hey michael um we wanted to bring you on because um you know we've been lied to for years and you know been under the impression that hans tellhofer was a time traveler when in fact uh-huh it's uh-huh. conrad kaiser who's the time traveler and i want to present some documentary evidence of the fact that conrad kaiser is a is a time traveler and it's not the usual stuff that people kind of harp on like diving suits and so on and so forth but um, other evidence. So we have a very clear uh, instance of him copying the famous Mel Brooks documentary, Robin Hood Men in Tights, which we all know is, you know, a, a perfect representation of medieval life. And uh, the inclusion of a, uh, a, a metal chastity belt stamped Everlast, which Conrad Kaiser copies. Hmm. And we also have an incident where... Um, if I could quote Len White Jr. here, um, one of the most remarkable pictures shows a castle which Quark identifies as Burke, Carlstein, and Bohemia. It is midnight on the first night after a new moon, the best time for magic. At the top of a tower is a clear drawing of a man blowing a horn to call the spirits. The man is undoubt- undoubtedly Kaiser, as may be seen by comparing his picture to his portrait in Folio 139A. At the summons, two goblins, one holding a taper made partially of the fat from a hanged man, ascend the mountain towards the castle. The ghost of the hanged man is shown entering the castle through the hole of a latrine, which juts from the parapet. Kaiser considered magic to be a branch of technology. On Folio 136, he declares that the art of magic to be the part of the mechanical arts, and that ranks them just above the arts of military. And I just want to say that that is clearly him having seen... Game of Thrones, and then taking that technology back into ancient times. So, um, where Good are we job, with Conrad, Conrad Kaiser here? <laughs> <laughs> well, I look- one of the great things about Conrad Kaiser is that everybody likes to just make up shit about him. So you're you're right on track with that, um, <laughs> <laughs> including including most of the scholarly research from the 20th century, actually. Um, (laughs) so we can start with that. I mean, Lynn White, uh, wrote a, was writing in 1969, I believe, if I recall correctly. So Mm -hmm. it's surprising how far we haven't come in, uh, Bella Ford's (laughs) research since then. (laughs) I mean, how much of that is actually just the fact that, I mean, most of the pandemic has forced most uh, European libraries to finally digitize a lot of what they have. And, you know, American research in particular scholarship has just been relatively poor when it comes to medieval history, or at least like uh, Renaissance and medieval uh, history. We, in this case, we can't even really blame it on Americans not having access to European resources because uh, Lynn White was responding to a dude named Quarg who 
wrote in German and published uh, that same year. Lynn White was a book review of this much longer edition that was also full of fantastic misinformation about Conrad Kaiser, where he basically <laughs> wrote was writing historical fiction to fill in his biography. Um, and scholars have spent decades trying to undo the damage. He also... Uh, tried to translate so the the Latin into German, and it's just riddled with mistakes that have misled subsequent readers. Um, so it's not just the Hema community and Talhofer that's created lots and lots of misconceptions around this stuff, but that goes back to the mid-20th century or earlier when everybody wants to look at it, but nobody actually puts the research in to understand it. Scholaring uh, is much hard. easier to make things up. Yeah, yeah it's, it's way easier, easier to make things up. Tell stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 interesting. So, what is Bellafortis? Uh, Bellafortis was a war book that was written at the very beginning of the 15th century. Um, it's a it's extensively illustrated. Um, I don't know, it's it's a lot of things. Um, so we, we, it's, it exists in at least two original manuscripts by the author, Conrad Kaiser, um, and possibly as many as five original manuscripts, and that's complicated. We can come back to that if you want. Um, but as a war book, it covers all of the arts of war as they were practiced or understood in the uh, late 14th century, basically, because... If, if you write a book in 1402, you're started working on it in the 1390s. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just how it works. These things didn't happen very fast. Uh, right. So it covers it covers lots of war machines, um, like siege engines, but also things you can use in field battles. It covers uh, various kinds of water technology, like boats and bridges. It covers um, different magic uh, magical formulae, which were called experiments um, in magical literature of the time, the experimenta genre of magic, which not like experiments like scientific uh, processes, but more like experiences, which has the same Latin root. Um, and then it has uh, lots of other wacky devices of different kinds that are sometimes vaguely related to warfare and other times less explicable um right, like goblins passing a, uh, a hanged man candle so that way they can <laughs> haunt some guy's asshole <laughs> right 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 exactly <clears throat> yeah but you know also things like the famous diving suits that show up in talhofer and so on um but this book was so uh the first thing to say about it is that it is not this isolated uh work that just sort of was the genius of one man who was this brilliant inventor. Um, you know, like we often conceive of Leonardo da Vinci as creating all these these uh, inventions that had no precedent and he was just brilliant and that's also not true. But in the case of Kaiser, we can look at, um, at the tradition that came before him that goes back to the Roman Empire and a lot of different medieval sort of um, traditions that he brought together into a work... Like he he organized them and he tried to present a co- a coherent narrative of warfare based on all these earlier sources. So he was very much a a compiler and a commentator more than he was an inventor. So he was um, doing so, Hema before 
Hema. Uh, yeah, to an extent, except that he was very convinced that this was the way that warfare should be fought. Whereas in, in Hema, we are mostly aware of the fact that what we're doing does not have direct relevance to actual combat anymore. Right. Um, but his, his outlook seemed to be that warfare was changing and that the stuff he gathered together would provide a blueprint for how to, how to conduct modern warfare, as opposed to medieval warfare, which was much more focused on, on individual knightly prowess and, and so on. Yeah, so, and, I mean, basically doing what Machiavelli would do not too long after in, in writing his aunt, The Art of War. Yeah. Basically just copying Vegetti. And, and there were reasons for that. I don't know if we want to get into his biography at this point. Um, yeah, let's yeah, get that. Stuff to cover first. We can yeah. just go that, with that right now, because yeah. it sounds like it's probably a reaction to some of his life experiences. Yes, it is. Um, so, and this is, this is my perspective on this. So I... Um, actually, let's, let's first talk about sources of research on this before I get into just spouting random facts and not giving citations because this is a podcast and we can't really. Um, but so I started, I wrote a paper on this for the Talhofer companion volume, uh, the first facsimile I produced because I wanted to set the record straight on Talhofer and the fact that he did not invent all of the wacky machines that are in his manuscript. Even though everyone always talks about Talhoffer's diving suits and so on. Um, and I thought I knew what the state of literature was at the time, but what I knew was what the state of literature had been when I looked into it in like 2010. And since then, a bunch of really important stuff had come out because all of a sudden, like there was a new generation of scholarship um, that looked at it. So a lot of what I know about this comes from... Um, uh, a researcher in Germany named um, Regina Kerman, and she published a huge monograph on Bellafortis in 2013 and also some other papers since then. And I also delved back into 20th century sources. Um, Reiner Lang uh, did his dissertation on war machines from the classical period to early modern. He was mostly interested in what are called gunmaster books which are about artillery and gunpowder and not about other kinds of, of war machines. But he covers Bellafortis in some detail to talk about the fact that they are not part of the gunmaster tradition, but a separate sort of textual tradition. Um, and then also going back to Quarg and all of his flights of fancy and this really interesting book that was published in English in 1965 um, that has been mostly ignored by researchers by a guy named Bertrand Gill. He actually wrote in France, French first, and then it was translated to English and published. Um, but this is sort of the, the literary background. And then I, I've also been studying books about um, medieval magic for quite a while, because that's a sort of side interest of mine that only occasionally overlaps with, with Hema. But there's a lot of really fascinating research on the tradition of creating magical manuscripts and magical formulae and stuff. And it's, it's fascinating as hell. Um, that whole tradition, which also feeds into Bellafortis because Conrad Kaiser was very interested in magic, in addition to engineering and technology. Um, so those are sort of the main bases, going back to Quark and Gill in the 60s, and then Regina Kerman's 2013 update of the information. Um, but from that, we can start to put together a picture of 
um, of his life. The the part that I think I've I I haven't seen discussed anywhere is the extent to which his whole perspective on warfare is based on a single battle that happened in the late 14th century, um, the Battle of Nicopolis, or the Nicopolis Crusade. So, um, and I think that understanding that makes so much of his book actually make sense, because everything he's doing was sort of refighting that battle in many different ways and showing how it could have not been the enormous disaster that it was. Um, yes. And I, I just, I flipped through my paper here. That was 1395 okay. was when, uh, or 96 rather, was when Nicopolis happened. Um, and this didn't a, go so well for the uh, European countries? Uh, no. So this was, uh, this was a crusade actually because it was being fought against the Ottoman Empire. Um, which had been sort of making incursions on Eastern Europe for, for decades, but had finally come to the point of threatening um, Buda, the capital of Hungary. And so um, the king of Hungary, Sigmund, called for, requested that the Pope call a crusade because, you know, if you're fighting Islamic countries, that's what you do in this right. time period still. Although the time of the big crusades was centuries earlier, there had been a lot of minor crusades. Um, this, however, would be the one that kind of soured Western Europe on the whole idea of crusades for quite a long time. Right, or at least crusades against the East. They did fight some crusades against Eastern Europeans, like the uh, the, Hussia, the Hussite Wars, which right, happened a or, few decades later. Or in the Prussia area, right. They had the but they, they, they lost all thirst to fight against the Middle Eastern powers after this <laughs> disaster. They were just um, For a while. Understand. Uh, yeah, so I can give you a, a quick play-by-play -play of how that battle went down. Break it that, down. Yeah, please that do. That cool. We love those. Uh, so uh, this the the year the Ottomans started expanding into Hungary in 1394, and the King of Hungary Sigmund, who would later become the Holy Roman Emperor, um, was not able to you know despite the fact that Hungary was not really part of the Holy Roman Empire. But well, that's different. That's a whole other thing. Um, but he he asked for, for support to help fight these the, the Ottomans off. Uh, Pope Boniface IX called for a crusade. Didn't get much response because the, this was during the, the schism between Rome and Avignon in France. So there was actually two different popes. And Clement VII was not calling for a crusade. Um, but the French got interested, especially the Burgundians because the Hundred Years' War was sort of lagging at that point. There hadn't been a major battle in quite a while, and the knights were restless. So the Duke of Burgundy indicated to um, King Sigmund that if the, he were to send, for, send a request to the King of France, who's technically in charge, or Duke of Burgundy is technically one of his vassals, although that relationship is often strained, and Burgundy was... Burgundy was semi-independent for a lot of its history. Uh, but so he, but you know, you have to go through channels. So he sent a message to Sigmund saying, if you ask the king of France to, for aid, then Burgundy will come. And they sent, and so the first problem with this battle, understanding it is that it's been the subject of historical analysis for, you know, 600 years now, because even at the time it was a big deal. And, 
a lot of the numbers on both sides get inflated or get shrunk down because both the Islamic chronicles and the French chronicles want to make it sound like they were fighting against overwhelming odds. So the the French force could it was been estimated as low as sixteen thousand and as big or the total Crusader force and as big as one hundred thirty thousand, and they would eventually face Muslim uh, forces mostly from the Ottoman Empire that range from 15,000 to 200,000, depending on who you ask. So realistically, the lower end numbers are probably more correct, and it was about 15,000 people on each side that, that came to this battle. But there were at least 5,000 French knights um, and 6,000 mounted armored archers and infantry who came to support the Hungarian forces um, and other Eastern European allies uh, to, who also sent sent troops, as it were. Um, so they assemble in Hungary. They Well, they get a lift from Venice to take them to Hungary. They all assemble at Buda. They have a council of war. Sigmund wants to let the Ottomans come to him, but the French, who have this culture of sort of chivalric adventurism, demand to go out and fight on the field because it's more noble. And... There's this funny thing that happens to the French knights where, like, they get massacred about once a generation, but somehow they never decide that's not fun. So, like, they, it's this is like classic chivalric glory culture where they don't <laughs> yeah. live or die. What they're looking for is a great battle, and they yeah. figure they're not going to find that if they wait behind the walls of Buddha and wait for the uh, the Ottomans to come to them. So what they want to do is they want to go f fight a pitched battle in the field. And Sigmund is like, ah, fine. And so he lets them, he, he gathers the whole army and they start marching south to find the Ottomans. Um, they, they take the Danube down to a place called Iron Gates Gorge. They cross the river on boats, which takes more than a week to move all their forces across because they don't have that many boats. Um... And then they're into occupied territory on the far side of the Danube. And so they start doing what, what armies in this period do, which is pillaging to support themselves. You know, you don't, you don't need to bring supplies when you can just steal them as you go. Um, this, is, this is a very medieval mode of warfare, right? And so <clears throat> they come to a city called um, Oriahovo. I think I'm mispronouncing that, but I don't know what language it even comes from. Um, and they loot it, and they... They take a bunch of prisoners, they keep marching, and they get to Nicopolis, which was a much harder target. This is, you know, where the name of the battle comes from, if you've forgotten. So they have, Nicopolis has plenty of supplies, they have terrain advantages, there's only one um, approach to the city that's up a steep slope, the rest of it is surrounded by cliffs, um, and you just can't attack it any other way. And the Crusader army has no siege technology with them. Um, because the French have a culture of, you know, winning through superior might, not through clever tricks. Um, and the and there's a there's an anecdote in, I think, Fossart, one of the French chronicles, saying that Bouchicot's comment was that ladders are pretty easy to build, so why would they yes. need to bring any? Um, and, and Michael, is, is that this is that the same Bouchicot that of uh, Fiore dual lore? Uh, yes, it is. He was one of the one of the big names in French knightly culture in this time. This was the same decade when when both of those duels happened. Awesome. And in fact, Bouchicot seems to, after all of this, 
have be so sort of demoralized by what happens that he goes on and like devotes his life to achieving chivalric deeds to try and make up for it. He like found his own chivalric order that's dedicated to knightly romance and like he he responds <laughs> to what what I'm about to describe by like going off the deep end into into chivalric ideals. Nice. Um, but like in a crazy way. And <laughs> you know what? Hold on. Let me let me pull out a book. I, I don't remember if this is before or after his first duel with the Fiore guy, but I it's mentioned in my Fiore book here. Uh, ta, ta, ta. uh 1395. We'll have to... So this is immediately after that the famous duel okay. with Galeazzo de Mantova. So he's he's basically trying to to save face here and kind of reestablish his knightly glory. Yeah. So the second duel that, that uh, he and Galeazzo fought is a couple of years later. Um, and by that time, he has seen the ugly side of war and decided to devote himself to the romantic side by fighting duels and, and you know, t- accepting all challenges and taking on lost causes and so on. Uh, but at this point, he's fresh from that duel, which happened in Italy, and is riding south where he imagined he's going to beat the Ottomans. Um, but the culture of the time is that knights are the ultimate war machine. And so, but all they can do at this point is lay siege to the city and try to starve them out because they have no ability to attack this fortress. Um, but the, the Nicopolis manages to send word to the Ottomans who are busy besieging Constantinople which was one of their favorite pastimes until the fu- Constantinople would ultimately be captured about 50 years later, um, and that's the end of the Roman Empire. But for now, they were frequently trying to take that last city. So they raise their siege, they ride to Nicopolis, they arrive about two weeks later, by which time the French are completely antsy, and they want to do literally anything besides sit at this siege. So they find out that the Ottomans are camping a few hours away, and they say, all right, we're going to go get them. And Sigmund tries to explain to them how Ottoman military tactics work, that they're, that they're currently digging in, they're building fortifications, they're going to send out um, waves of peasant conscripts just to sort of test the enemy before they can face the main um, Ottoman um, army, and, but the French don't care. You know, they're knights, they have horses, they have archers. What could go wrong? They ride out ahead of the infantry, which can't keep up. Um, They encounter the first rank of Ottoman peasant conscripts. They slaughter them, but the peasants already have a row of stakes in front of them, so which the French have to pull up by hand before they can get their horses through. So they end up losing some horses on the stakes, losing some horses and knights to the archers, um, and then... But they ultimately they win this little skirmish. A bunch of them dismount and they start pulling up the stakes. They get their horses through. And then they encounter the main Ottoman army. With, uh, with some portion of their knights dismounted. And they are extremely outnumbered. And so at this, so prior to encountering the Ottomans, the French commanders want to pause and wait for the infantry to catch up before proceeding. But their knights basically disobey orders and start charging anyways. So the French commanders kind of shrug. Like at this point, even the even those guys like Bouchico 
and and John of Nevers are like, maybe we should regroup before we go on to the main army, but it's too late. They start going up the hill to the main encampment, and then the the very predictable thing happens, which is when faced with the entire fresh host of the Ottoman army, they are quickly surrounded, and the ones who survived the initial action surrender for ransom, and that's the end of the French forces. The Ottomans then proceed forward, as Sigmund's army is trying to catch up, the Ottomans flank the army, they surround them, the Sigmund tries to lay battle lines and keep from being completely enveloped, uh, but later this same day, you know, he had, the French are, are completely out of the equation at this point, and fresh cavalry arrive to support the Ottomans, and the battle is lost. Like, they may have had a chance if they'd all stayed at Nicopolis, but with the way that their army got strung out and then picked off group by group, they really had no chance at this point. Sigmund is compelled to leave the field by his lieutenants ahead of the Ottomans. Most of the army is captured, um, but it gets worse from there. So the worse. Romanian, <laughs> yeah, the okay. Romanian contingent of Sigmund's army had already fled the field because when they saw um, riderless horses coming back from the direction that the French had gone, the Romanians said, oh shit, the, uh, the French are dead. And they, they, they uh, just sort of abandoned the field before they even saw the Ottomans. These were probably Ottoman horses that had come back this early in the day, mm -hmm. but they didn't know that. So the Romanians fled across the river, took some of the boats with them, and the remaining Hungarian army um, and their allies who tried to retreat had almost no ability to get across the Danube. So a lot of them drowned trying to swim across the river. Um, some of them tried to overloaded some of the boats, which sank, and more of them drowned. So there was a further route that happened on the riverbank as the Ottomans pushed them up against the river and they had no ability to cross. Whereas the, uh, the French had made one other terrible decision this day, which was they decided to execute all of their prisoners they had taken up to that point prior to joining battle. Brilliant. And Brilliant. This, was a, this was a just like a, a bloodshed that had no real justification. And even the French chronicles of the time described this as just like a horrific act that they have no justification for. Um, like, you know, everyone agrees the French screwed up there. But when the um, Sultan of the Ottoman Empire heard about this, who was named Bayezid, um, he was not happy. So he ordered all the French knights assembled, specifically the French, because he had heard they were responsible for the bloodshed, not the Hungarians, and started executing them. And apparently from morning till noon, he had them executed in small groups until he was finally persuaded by his counselors that it had been enough bloodshed. But between 300 and 3,000 French knights were executed <clears throat> in this group. Um, well, they separated out the high nobility um, and knights under the age of 20 and made them watch while all of the other knights, you know, the ones who couldn't afford as much ransom and were older than the over 20, were just sort of slaughtered um, in groups of three and four. <clears throat> and it took like the French... Oh, yeah, yeah. So this was just, like, bad in many, many, many ways. 
Um, it took the French over a year to get back. So ultimately, the king of France negotiated a joint, a group ransom for all of the French knights. But only a few of them actually survived because there was also they were subject to disease during their captivity and a lot of them died of disease. And I saw a, a statement that only 12 actually returned. I don't know if that was only 12 of the nobility or 12 knights, period, or 12 French people, period. But it was very much of a, a, a decimation of everyone they sent out. You know, there's like shades of Agincourt and shades right. of, of other battles of, of knights just being slaughtered. Um, but yeah, so this battle was apparently witnessed by Conrad Kaiser, the author of our war book. And we don't know exactly what his capacity was. He may have been a medic. He may have been like just a, a sort of camp follower, like a scribe or a, a legal scholar or something who was serving one of the princes who were there. But he definitely saw it and it definitely sort of left an impression on him. Like it probably left on literally everybody who survived it. It was... Uh, you know, it was a day of just constant bloodshed and a lot of bloodshed that did not have to happen. So that sort of casts a light on everything that he ends up putting in his war book that's often missed when we just look at the individual devices. Um, because what he's proposing is a model of warfare that could have solved basically all of these tragedies. Um, as I think basically, maybe we'll get into more as we go through this. Yeah. <laughs> well, don't be stupid, but, you know, questions like, all right, what's the right way to besiege a city? What's right. the right way to lay battle lines on a field? You know, how can you, like, what are knights good for? Answer, not very much. Um, but, like, you know, if you're being enveloped by cavalry, then being able to build wagon forts and having war wagons and stuff would be a great thing to have. Right. Um, um, water technology for how to move soldiers across bodies of water, including his famous diving suits, but also inflatable life preservers and different kinds of boats that can be transported overland. Um, and then he goes into new technology. So that's all classic medieval stuff. And he goes into new technology um, of different kinds of pyrotechnics and firearms that could even the odds against superior forces. And he finally goes into miscellaneous fun little small tools and weapons that are useful for military activities. But he sort of, when you compare the way his book breaks down to the key points at which the Crusaders failed that w that could have saved the day, it lines up pretty nicely. So I think in some sense we can look at this as a manual for how he thinks they should have fought this battle. Um, and I don't think this has popped up in the literature, so maybe this is my little contribution to Belafortis studies, um, is looking at Kaiser's actual military experience. <clears throat> so, I don't know, what should, where should we go from here? Yeah, so, I mean, you said that he was a, a medic, right? And so there, I don't know if this is something that's true or not. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to tell looking back through... I, Obviously, like from your research, um, you, you've kind of clarified a lot of this information, but maybe you can kind of clarify that here too for, you know, a lot of the discussion is around him studying in Padua, possibly studying medicine. Um, mm -hmm. Is that, do, you, do we know that there's some like 
is there some hard evidence behind that? Is that true? Is that uh, so? We know that he mentions that he served um, a couple different princes. Uh, did, uh, I'm looking for my list here. Uh, so we don't know that he had medical training. Uh, the only place that we've found Conrad uh, Kaiser in historical records outside of his own writings is he was inscribed at the University of um, Prague as da, 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 as a law student. Uh, but he was only there for one year. He, he only appears in the registers in 1390. Um, he would have had to get some prior education in order to get into a doctoral program. So he needed a master's degree, which was six years of study at a university before he could be admitted. We don't know where that happened. It could have been Padua. Um, he mentions that he served, um, uh, Francesco II, who was Lord of Padua, um, and it's speculated by some writers that he was actually involved in the campaign to install Francesco. I think he was Padua, right? Um, and he also served a bunch of Eastern European lords, um, Wenzel of Bohemia, Jobst of Moravia, Stefan of Bavaria, Wilhelm of Austria, and eventually Sigmund of Hungary. Um, but he, uh, we don't know when he would have been in Padua. So the idea that he might have studied there before he enrolled in the University of Prague is possible. Um, Padua is interesting because the Padua had a substantial library and he could have looked at some of the earlier medieval war books um, if he had access to that library in Padua, which is a place where they, uh, where they definitely had them. Um, these are all manuscripts, right? So we can sort of trace specific individual copies. It's not like a printed book, which might have scattered far and wide. There aren't that many places where you can find these manuscripts, and Padua was one of them. But we don't know when he was there. Um, yeah, Francesco II of Carrera, my, um, if he was his overlord, that would have been the opportunity. Other writers say he might not have reached there till the 1390s, um, later on, after he was the University of Prague. Um, it seems likely that he was there at some point, but we can't really fill in the blanks there. Um, but Padua, like I said, did have resources that might have inspired him to put together his book. So it's not hard to, it doesn't strain credibility to say that he would have stopped by there at some point during his, his mysterious career. As far as him being a medic, we don't really have a lot of evidence for that. It is, it is a possibility. It's one of the, you know, kinds of learned people who would be surrounding princes. There are a couple of random facts that are very circumstantial we could look at, but we don't have any document, documentary evidence of him being a doctor or any kind of medic. Um, medics were also often magicians, um, especially when they were involved with the high nobility uh, as he was. So that also sort of plays into it. Uh, but he could have also been sort of a, a jurist, a lawyer type, or he could have been another one of the, that kind of educated class. Um, we don't really know. Let's uh, move back to Bella Fortis here. So okay. Kaiser created four different versions of his Bella Fortis. How yeah. did he refine the manual over time? All right. So he, the books themselves are fairly similar. 
uh, in terms of their content, the, or the, their individual content, I should say. The first one was in 1402, and it was followed by one in 1405. These are the two that can be definitively traced to him personally. Um, between them, the 1405 was had much higher quality art um, and was in, in generally an expansion of the 1402 along the same sort of lines, but all the types of contents were present in both. Um, when we get to the 1407 and 1410 sort of versions, we, we break it down into the 10 chapter version, which was the first two, and the seven chapter version, which was the, the second two, and most of the later copies. Um, so the seven chapter version was the one that sort of disseminated through libraries in Europe. Okay. And it's uh, a few of the contents get moved around, but by and large, um, what happens in the 10 chapter version, so both of these versions start with field battles. They move through siege weapons and climbing tools, which are two separate chapters for some reason. Um, and they also have defensive technology, the water technology. Um, and then the sixth chapter in the seven, in the seven chapter version and chapter seven, eight, and nine in the 10 chapter version are about pyrotechnics. So he mm -hmm. sort of tightens that up in the later versions and and mixes them together basically anything that involves fire like there's also like bathhouses and stuff anything you can do that's interesting and technological with fire or magical and then the last chapter in both is just miscellaneous tools and weapons um, but between these two major uh works he sort of moves around individual items um, reassigns them to new categories like he's still deciding what the best sequence of presentation is for the individual tools. Um, but by and large, they follow similar, uh, they have similar contents. It's just sort of the organization gets more refined over time. Uh, but they can basically great break down into along similar terms to what um, the Roman writer Vegetius wrote. So, and you, we, it's, it could be argued that he's sort of trying to make a modern version of that. And Vigetius uh, has, which I think actually is the better pronunciation, has his, if, uh, divides his book into four chapters, and the last two, which are the, uh, let me, let me, let me try to explain this more clearly. So I have this cool book that I found that Charles Lane recommended to me. Um, which is a study of all the use marks in copies of this Roman strategy manual by Vigetius, which Vigetius was not a Roman general. He was a, but he compiled a lot of um, existing teachings on Roman warfare into one mm -hmm. book. Um, he was a functionary in the government, but because all the sources that he compiled uh, disappeared by this time period and his book survived, his book was very popular in the Middle Ages. And I found this interesting study that covers all the manuscript copies that this author could find and looks at the use marks in them. So all of the marginal notations of people studying Begetius. And an interesting thing I noticed is that they, for the most part, they study the first half of it, which is about training and commanding soldiers. And there are, there are much fewer notes in the last half, the second, the third and fourth books, which cover field battle and siege warfare. And that's where... Kaiser 
is heavily investing, almost like he's saying, this is the important part of the book if you're going to fight wars. Why is no one studying this? So he organizes his along the lines of field battles, then siege warfare, and then naval battle, which is combined with siege warfare in Begetius, but in some copies gets broken out into a fifth book. And then he adds to that the modern high-tech stuff of pyrotechnics and guns and so on. Yeah. So it's like he's giving an... He's giving an update of Vigetius and then adding in the stuff that the Romans didn't know about for modern warfare, um, cannons and rockets and so on. And then don't a lot of publications uh, through the late 1400s um, into the 1500s of Vigetius that end up showing up in Italy have images from uh, Kaiser, don't they? Or at least like images that look similar to kind of copying his ideas. Yeah. The two kind of became synonymous. So there's an interesting thing. Um, I don't know that all of them are Kaiser because there are a couple other significant war books that pop out around the same time period. There is the... Uh, uh, I'm blanking on the name that it's give, that it's often given. It's like the Bohemian something or other. Uh, but from the 1430s, that has a lot of interesting war machines. Um, there is uh, There are a couple of late 14th century manuscripts that may have inspired Kaiser, even though they also have different pictures, um, including a couple copies of, of Vigetius that have these pictures added. There's a group that are that sometimes called the primitive group, primitives group, which is either Kaiser's very first drafts of his work or an earlier work that inspired his illustrations. We, we don't know for sure. Um, and then, I mean, we could even look at a guy like Leonardo da Vinci, who's doing similar things a yeah. few generations later. And he's also right to making these interesting sketches that are based on a lot of classical designs with his own elaborations. So this sort of genre of engineering diagrams related to warfare sort of has, has a, a lot of different branches in the 15th century. And it does eventually trickle into some printed books in the 16th century that, I, that I've seen uh, before sort of going away as a lot of those, like they, they sort of go from proposed military technology to random curiosities and then eventually they sort of die out completely um and they become you know quaint antiquarian type things that's interesting do you know if there was a copy of um a bellafortis or at least some version of bellafortis in milan at any time um i do not know the the provenance there, I have a list of all the copies that we know about. I don't see Milan currently on it. It wouldn't surprise me if they had some access to something. Um, yeah. But for when it comes to manuscript provenance, getting into like, especially the 15th and 16th century is often hard to nail down. Yeah, record keeping um, is pretty bad. Yeah, and a lot of like, a lot, we, we can usually find things back to the 18th or 17th century, but before that, you know, nobody knows where they bought the book from, so they can't they can't tell you where it used to be. Uh, yeah, I was just... The reason I brought that up is because I, I know in, in researching for this, I, was, I had come across somebody mentioning that they thought that Da Vinci was uh, pretty heavily inspired by Bella Fortis uh, for a lot of his, like, siege designs and things like that and some of the siege engines that he came sure. up with. And then... Um, I was just, I was wondering if that was in the Sforza library, because I know in his personal notebooks, he said he started to study war machines 
at the request of uh, Ludovico Sforza when he was in Milan. So if if we could kind of connect those things, we might find connect uh, some dots. I yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I'd have to I'd have to do more research on that. I I don't know the early history of most of these. So he said he found one in Milan because I'm I'm sure uh, he traveled pretty widely. Not not necessarily in Milan. I think he had started to study siege engines at the request of Ludovico Sforza. So Ludovico All had right. asked him, "Hey, I want you to start using some of your creative genius to start coming up with some of these, <laughs> you know, weapons of war <laughs> to help me fight wars." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I have <laughs> not heard lose. of that. Was that? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that that that'd be an interesting thing to try and track down if there were copies yeah. he would have access to. But like I said, in Padua at least, there were also other illustrated war books that were not Bellafortis or directly related. Um, so there was certainly other stuff in Italy at this time, other writers who were doing similar things in the right. turn of the 15th century. Cool. Okay. Um, so Bellafortis was copied uh, many, many, many times, right? Yeah. Uh, by various other authors, but... Uh, each of the authors seems to have chosen parts of the book to keep and others to omit. What are the parts that were kept in most translations and what was omitted? Uh, so, I... Hmm. I, I cannot think off the top of my head of any where they're, like, putting in just, like, where they're... So, where they're only doing a like the first half or something like that. What what typically happens is they start bridging down to just taking out some of the less interesting things to them. Um, so we get into, I mentioned that there's the 10 chapter group and the seven chapter group, right. but we get from there into what's called the disorganized seven chapter group is one of the branches. And that's where Talhofer fits in um, where we have this pretty tidy, especially the seven chapter version is pretty well organized where nothing really pops up in places where you don't you don't understand why it's there in the 10 chapter versions there were a lot of things where you almost think that like pages must have got shuffled because they just have no business being next to other Mm -hmm. things the seven chapter version is very well organized but then especially when we get into the german language translations uh because it was originally written in latin but most of the copies we have now are german then everything gets jumbled up again and so you start getting just like this random assortment or random arrangement of devices with no pattern. And then from there, people just start narrowing it down to things that maybe they amuse them, that they think are cool looking or, you know, whatever their criteria are. But so like Talhofer only has about half of the things that are in okay. the source that as far as we can tell, it was copied from. Um, the source that uses the same translation and has very similar artwork, only about half of it's carried forward, and it's all disorganized. So I think what happens is people stop seeing it as having specific value as a teaching on warfare, and they start seeing it as just a catalog of curi- of strange things. More of a curio, basically. Yeah. And then, yeah. They, and then you can narrow it down to what are the cool strange things that you like versus <laughs> the ones that are, that are uh, discardable. <laughs> So now we know all about Talhofer. Right. But there's also, there's another interesting branch of elaborations where they start adding things to it. And this is especially what's called the the pseudo-Hartleib branch. Um, And he was a author who wrote various kinds of 
of magical works um, Hartlife was, including one that appears in another Talhofer manuscript about name magic. But one of his, but one strand of Belafortis became associated with his name for quite a long time, and that's that one's interesting because it shows instead of just the raw devices in sort mm-hmm. of schematic views the way we have in Belafortis, um, it starts it starts combining them into more complex scenes where they I think someone's talking in the background. Um, okay. Uh. I'll, I'll mute here for a second. Sorry about that. Ah, no problem. Um, so the... You start getting scenes where, like, instead of just showing wagons that can be used to build a wagon fort, it actually shows a wagon fort being used against, against opposing forces or different machines being combined into siege warfare scenes and so on. So in those cases, it's not just... Um, it's not people narrowing them down. It's people combining several pictures from the original Bellafortis into a single portrayal of how they imagined they would be used. So in that case, it gets more elaborate, um, even as there are so, sometimes fewer pages. Um, and we see those things of people adding details that weren't present in the original, as well as people dropping things from the original. Um, so it kind of takes on a life of its own for quite a while. Um, and different people sort of create these new interpretations of it for their own reasons. What is, um, what is Philomenus or Philomenus or however you say his name? <laughs> is that like a torture device? Uh, is that a magical device? That's, that's the naked guy. Um, yeah, the naked guy. <laughs> yeah. So if you, if you've been through, there's an interesting example of detail being lost. If you've been through Talhofer, the manuscript, um, the 1459, you may have seen the picture of a naked guy. Um, and the text says that his, his Philomenus, but what is missing here is that the earliest versions, he's clearly a statue and not a dude. Um, and the idea is that it's some sort of little flamethrower device for lighting fires, not like a military device even, but like just a fire starter. And it was a man shaped statue, presumably quite small that you would fill with oil um, or other flammable materials, and you could use it to blow little jets of flame. And in the first, so in, in the fourteen oh two version, he's clearly a statue on top of like a fire source with like some elaboration. In the fourteen ten seven chapter version, it's just a, it's a naked guy, but he's a a gray naked guy who's clearly made of metal. And then from there, more detail is lost, and they just draw him as a naked man. <laughs> with with no indication of why it's talking about fire or anything in there. It says, like, if you fill me with oil, then I can start fires. Uh, yeah, so a lot of them like that sort of lose detail until they become inexplicable um, in the later versions. Like there's, But other times, detail gets introduced that wasn't present in the earlier ones, where an artist clearly was able to read the description and adds in details that were not drawn by the original manuscript. So it goes in both directions of detail being lost and detail being added to explain what the hell is going on. Yeah. So another kind of instance of like lost detail is um, obviously uh, the whole pistol thing. Um, and we kind of first came across Bellafortis when doing research for one of our Maestro Wars episode. And the episode, mm-hmm. more than a thousand people take shelter in a cave system near Vicenza. 
Italy, and uh, the lens connects kill them by sending poisonous gas into the cave. Um, have you come across similar instances of uh, just things being used uh, from Belafortis and historical examples? I have not studied that at all, really, so I, I can't comment on that. Um, certainly, the the stuff he's proposing was not, uh, as I said, it wasn't his own invention, and we certainly see the evolution of things like Wagenbergs um, and war wagons, especially in wars in the early 15th century, uh, being used. And a lot of the siege technology that he describes uh, gets used in various wars, but not necessarily because they read it in his book. It might right. just as easily be that he was recording things that other people already knew about um, yeah. and just adding his own little captions to them. Um, as far as his magic and pyrotechnic set, well, I say magic. This also includes things like chemistry yeah. and so on. Yeah, like natural things. magic, right. Alchemy, yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it, to him, it would have been considered magic. Um, I don't know how, how frequently that ever got used in warfare. Likewise, things like summoning demons. I'm not sure they ever actually got realistically used. Um, it worked for Marazzo. <laughs> right. Sure, sure, maybe. Um, but yeah, so as a, as a snapshot of military technology and sort of intellectual thought of his time period... We can see it reflected elsewhere, but I don't know that we can say that it was because of him. Right. Yeah. I, I do think, so, Stephen, we've, we've kind of gone back and forth about this, and I, I do think I've actually found what Pissel is. Um, so, Piss actually does have its etymological roots in Latin, and it means piss, right? Got it. Uh, it, it went from Latin to French. Ammonia, basically. Dehydrated piss. Exactly. You can make... So... I, I probably shouldn't have researched this because I'm pretty sure I'm on an FBI watch list now. Um, but, you know, like working in a laboratory, like mm -hmm. what we look for is when bacteria starts to digest like urine metabolites, um, it'll start to produce nitrogen. And, and so we'll see nitrate show up in urine. Um, mm -hmm. And you can actually make ammonia nitrate from dehydrated urine. So what I'm thinking is pissel. I don't know if you've ever seen dried piss before. So like pee that's been I, sort of collected and it dries out. Yeah, um, so it, it, it forms, yeah, it's so basically what it does is it forms basically like this uh, sort of yellowish powder down at the bottom. And that is basically concentrated ammonium nitrate, which is the main ingredient for what you would want if you were trying to blow something up. Oh, that's like so, what's in TNT or something like that? It is, yeah, exactly. Oh, wow, okay. So yeah. just so, TNT smoke and mattress feathers. Yeah, I think I think pistol is basically just your it's your uh, sort of accelerant there. So there you go. That sounds like a great so, theory. Yeah. So uh, you're referring to um, a formula that's in Bellafortis that also appears in Talhofer, right? Where he tells you that if you want to drive people out of out of caves where they're hiding, then you should mm -hmm. combine urine and pistol um, with and with mattresses or pillows with feathers. And you set it on fire to create a noxious smoke. Um, yep. Just to, to give context in case people don't know where this came from. Um, but yeah, I, I had no idea what pistol meant. And when I had this translated, the translator also couldn't find any any indication either. of this word. Right. Um, <laughs> but it mentions mixing Europe and pistol. So if that's dried urine, that would be interesting. Piss um, in two forms. 
Yeah, so that's that's where that's what I was thinking too when I was first kind of running down this this run. But I wonder if um, if there's the the piss isn't just to kind of saturate the mattress so that way you're kind of like reconstituting the urine or like the the pistol. Mm-hmm. If that doesn't make sense, I don't know. No, mm. Italian sources say it was sulfur, as far as I know. Sulfur, okay. Mm-hmm. But there doesn't seem to be any linguistic connection between sulfur and pistol. Yeah. So who knows. I don't know. Yeah. Huh. Just a, an interesting run. It's it's definitely a word that's lost to history, though. I've huh. looked all over the place for something that's more concrete than that, outside of just kind of following the basic chemistry of it. Yeah. Which is super interesting. Um. So another item of interest you, uh, in our can't story. Can't you also oh. extract phosphorus from urine? Um. I mean, there's definitely phosphorus present. Um. You know, that's one of the things about like kidneys regulating. I thought, I... I have this vague idea in my mind that that was a way medieval people would actually get the material was get the phosphorus, a, yeah, a chemical process from with involving urine. Um, it's, it's I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that's relevant here. Hmm. I imagine. Yeah. yeah. So, so they use a sulfur gas. Is that what you said? So the Italian source I have on it says it was sulfur. Uh huh. But who knows? Did they use feathers? Yes. So mattresses and sulfur. Hmm. So they have the feather part down, they have the fire part down, they have the cave part down. It says sulfur, but, you know, this was a ger- maybe a German war technique. Otherwise, the Italians wouldn't have been so determined to stay in the caves thinking they were safe. So <laughs> the Italians may yeah. not have known what they were using. There was only two survivors, I think, out of the whole attack. So they were probably like, it smelled like sulfur. but. And what year was this? Mm, this attack, I think, was in 1511, 1510, something like that. Fascinating. Because, yeah, the details in the description in like specifically caves and cliffs mm-hmm. um, and and mattresses and so on, being used, being very similar to an incident 100 years later is fascinating. This is um, yeah. kind of so neat about the project is finding the finding what's actually happening, which is a little bit more complicated than... Hollywood would typically depict medieval warfare or Renaissance warfare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, like another item of interest to the story, um, especially around like uh, Rangoni and Popoli that's kind of come up is um, concerns the cats that we see illustrated both in Talhofer and in Belafortes. Um, our sources up to now have called the cat a battering ram of a sort. Um, so, you know, that could just be, that could be an interesting like a, a, I don't know about a, a mistranslation or at least maybe like a sort of a misnomer of calling something that's a siege engine a battering ram, um, mm-hmm. or maybe the, the word just doesn't translate well um, to modern English. But the ones of Bellafort yeah. just seem like they've they've been used uh, with like a, a tower. You know, they've got the claws and they kind of hook up, and it's more for climbing um, than so it is for being used as a battering ram. Yeah. So I don't. Um, I have a translation of the Talhofer stuff, and I haven't had the rest of it translated, but Talhofer has two different things called a cat, mm. and one of them mm. does seem to potentially have a battering ramp component. Mm. It's primarily a mobile ramp that you can use to um, bring soldiers from the ground. They can climb this um, sort of mobile seesaw-looking thing and climb it up to a wall, but the front of it also has a battering ramp component that's not really explained. And the other one is a sort of a, a mobile bridge. I guess if you want to like 
run it up against a wall, then you know you could ram it against a gate and then still have the wall mounting capabilities. Um, but it's yeah. Then the other one is very much a a sort of bridging tool where you can you have a siege tower that you can then use to run a bridge across to the top of a wall. Uh, but it's possible that this cat um, is a more generic term for a type of siege tool, and this is just giving examples of them. Uh, I could yeah. I could certainly see Rams fitting into that. I don't know that he has a separate term that specifically de- de- or, uh, describes Rams. Okay. So the, the, they're, I don't. They're not necessarily a conflict there. Yeah, the Venetians knew that it was called a cat and that the Germans would call it a cat because they ended up mocking them and tying cats, stray cats that they found to the tips of spears and hanging, dangling them above the ramparts to kind of mock the lands connects that are trying to attack the Cotolonga gate. Serenading so, them too. With a, a yeah. And with a, with a beautiful song all about their cats. <laughs> um, so, you know, they, they knew what, what the Germans were calling these things and they were aware of, what they were. So uh, it, it's interesting that there's kind of this, uh, at least this kind of level of knowledge that kind of exists between both sides. Yeah. In fact, I'm, I'm paging through these scans here and I don't see any other kinds of Rams besides that one. So mm-hmm. okay, this could be just a multifunction tool. Um, Got it. So attack the gate yeah. from below and bridge up top. Mm-hmm. Cool. You know, and, or whichever one's more useful, perhaps. <laughs> I wonder how they got the name cat. Maybe it's a sense yeah, of a cat know. clawing its way up a wall or something like that. He also has one that he refers to as a dog. So <laughs> it could just be they had a whole like animal slang thing going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the dog is another kind of mobile bridge. So, cool. yeah. Okay. Um. So at the Siege of Padua, uh, the outside wall collapsed, but the Venetians had a secondary wall inside, uh, which the devices, which devices would the lands connects have brought forward to assail that second wall? So the, there's a second wall called the Retrata that we've, we've kind of found. The Paduans, or not the, well, the Paduans, the Venetians had copied from uh, the Pisans. And uh, I mean, uh, apparently this had been around for a long time. Again, this is kind of just a re- reintegration of an old technology uh this idea of building this sort of inner wall um but the uh they definitely uh, were copying the pieces specifically with this with this retrata if i recall my military terminology the uh in german at least that the gap in between the two walls was the zwinger um and that shows up in some lichtenauer texts as a as a nickname for things um, Interesting, but it's yeah the, the the area where you can trap them between the outer wall, but they still have to face the inner wall, like that that sort of killing field in there. Yeah. Um, as far right. as machine design for that, I am not. I don't. I can't think of any off the top of my head that that were for that specific use case. I guess you would need to clear out enough space to bring in your typical siege machines. A lot of them are are on wheels and so on, so they're not going to climb over rubble that well. Yeah, um, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, if if Busico was there, he would have said, "Just grab the ladders, right?" Just grab That's ladders. what Busico right. would have said. 
Just but stand the French on each other's shoulders. <laughs> the French knights that were there, like uh, um, mm-hmm. Chevalier Bayard, were like, hey, we're not getting off of our horses to go attack that rampart. Mm-hmm. They probably knew what happened to Busico, and they're like, hell no, we're not doing this. <laughs> Looks like there's a lot of dying going on there. Let's hang back here and drink some more wine. Yeah. Right. I mean, horsemen are... are, are not that hard to uh, to stop when it comes to walls. Like they're they're not the best at getting over them. At uh, I was in Forli in Italy, and we saw a fortification that seemed to have an. This is one that was involved with the Sforza family, but they seemed to have an outer wall that was only like um, waist high or maybe a little bit taller. That seemed to just be a horse wall to make it harder for cavalry to get too close to the main walls. Um, like like. The uh, people, th- things that humans can climb over with ladders provide much, much bigger obstacles for horses. Right. They're yeah. not good at ladders. Yeah. <laughs> I've they noticed. mostly seem good at that whole raiding thing for the rest of Warfare. Yeah. They kind of seem sort of useless, but the raiding Horse- thing horses, they're really good at. Horses are, aren't good when you need to stay still, or at least they're not very useful. Um, siege, and, siege Warfare is not... Uh, there's a reason why... Sieges tended to drag on because if all you have are knights, then you can't really do very much. Right. Except well, that was, for the food to run out. Right. And that's exactly what Maximilian did and ran out of money. So. Yeah, <laughs> ran out of money before they ran out of food. <laughs> right. Hope that their food runs out before yours does in a lot of cases. Right. This is exactly what it is. Yep. <laughs> so I guess um, they probably would so, have been carrying ladders, and maybe that's why they used the cats to attack the bastions, which were still connected to the outer wall, so they wouldn't have to go mm-hmm. over the rubble. That yeah. Sense. Yeah, for sure. If they would have had Pietro Monte, he could have gotten up on top of the Retrata, because he's, you know, he was a badass. They would, he, would, <laughs> he would just teleport on top of it. I mean, he was Pietro Monte. <laughs> yeah. That sounds exactly. true. <laughs> and he would defeat everybody with nothing but rising blows the whole time. <laughs> Well, I mean, they're up on a wall. How, what else are you going to attack them with? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you right. can't throw a descending fire. Come on. <laughs> Too high. <laughs> oh, man. That's funny. Um, so war wagons, which we might liken to like primitive tanks, also appear in the book. Um, mm-hmm. They were particularly noteworthy in the Hussite Wars in the early 1400s. Uh, can yeah. you tell us about them? So the war wagons were a more or less a like a medieval tank and they really came into their own in the 15th century before eventually uh, losing ground. Like there was a window of a few decades when cannons were good enough to be worthwhile to, to, and not good enough to actually blast through these sorts of wooden fortifications. Um, like a cannon will totally take out horses and men, but you could build these sturdy wooden wagons that would um, be proof against at least a few cannon shots and also the and also like we were seeing handheld firearms at this time, um, in addition to the traditional bows and crossbows, and Kaiser includes both these sort of handguns and crossbows in his book. But he the uh, the idea of a war wagon is it's a heavily reinforced wooden wagon that becomes a mo- mobile bunker more or less, um, and you can use these to. Basically, as sort of almost like offensive siege warfare, where the Hussites got very good at advancing them quickly and putting them right in their enemy's face, and then the enemy who wants to attack them is forced to contend against their mobile fortifications. So Kaiser has a couple different things to build these wagon forts. 
he has just mobile gun emplacements, uh, like cannon emplacements, and he has these things that are basically barricades on wheels that you can use. They have no carrying capacity, but they're big obstacles. You can just sort of drag out there and pl place. And then he also has fully enclosed um, war wagons, which have bolt holes for you to shoot handguns or crossbows through while you're in the protection of this sort of wooden palisade. Um, so it is a a sort of a new version of siege warfare where you can actually put your fort right in the middle of the battlefield. Um, and I don't know how early we see these, but they definitely um, are credited with a lot of the Hussite victories early in the Hussite wars before the Europeans figured out strategies to counter them. And they sort of disappear by the 1470s or 80s because more powerful cannons can just start blowing holes through them finally. Got it. Um, you start and, to see more field cannons, yeah. And then there's no there's no value to them anymore. But uh, in addition to these war wagons, uh, Kaiser also has a lot of different mobile barriers that you can just put out to break cavalry charges. Um, so not only are you having fortifications you can attack from, but also just things to make it so that your enemy cannot do the charge they want, the cavalry charge they're hoping for against you. Um, and uh, there's a funny word for that that one of the writers on Belafortis uses, but they're basically the, the things you see all over Belafortis, like so many different versions of a big old, a thing that looks like it would be a battering ram, but it has wheels in the front, and you're not using it to attack anything, you're just setting it down in the field, and it has a big old bar behind it that braces it against the ground so that you can't really push it over very easily. Um, but all the pictures of it being used are basically just showing guys like moving it around or hiding behind it, not, not actually, <laughs> not attacking with it. Yeah, they're, they're just barriers. Like he has a whole lot of ideas about how you can create these sort of defensive lines by just dropping these pieces of equipment and like fire and forget tools that will keep the enemy from maneuvering the way they want to. That's interesting. And yeah, the war wagon and the wagon fort are sort of the ultimate manifestation of this because now you're not just disrupting, but you can also attack out of it from relative safety. Basically, kind of just stopping too. that nightly charge. Mm -hmm. Further, like you know, making 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 the the cavalry less useful, uh, because for a period in the Middle Ages, they were considered the ultimate uh, battlefield tool. And I know that like Jack Gassman will come in and tell me that I'm wrong, and that really they were better for skirmishing. But in literature, and especially like in the ideals of warfare, <laughs> mm -hmm. the knights thought of themselves that way. Um, yeah. <laughs> even if, even right. if what, like a lot of warfare was sieges, they were also, they excelled at skirmishing and at harassment as well. But what they really wanted was a chance to, you know, go up against less well-armored, less well-trained opponents right. and just, and scatter them, yeah. right? Just mow them yeah. down. Um, but this was, th these were tools that infantry could use to, and less, less heavily armored soldiers could use to counter all of their advantages. And that was the idea. Yeah. was to try to make I, them I obsolete. It, it depends on terrain too, right? Like, I mean, you, you mm -hmm. think about it, like, especially when you're fighting, once you get out of the forests of Germany and you start kind of getting, like, at least for the Holy Roman Empire in, in general, um, and you start getting out into more of the plains um, in Eastern Europe, uh, you know, cavalry's effectiveness is going to increase significantly. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas, like, if you're in Italy and you're fighting in Tuscany, 
then yeah, it kind of makes sense <laughs> that you're probably going to want to have your knights dismounted because horses, you know, you're going to be working with a lot of tight mountain passes and things like that. that you're not going to have, you're not going to have any group charges. <laughs> oh, um, certainly. And there's a reason why the Hussites specifically were, were trying to bring all the battles into the hills and into these tight spaces where they could use their, their war wagons and their tactics to nullify the much larger European armies who are being sent to quell the heresies. Um, because on open fields, a lot of this, you know, you can ultimately go around some of these things, whereas the the smaller your army is and the more sort of mechanized war machines you have, the more advantages you're going to have in these tight terrains. Like if you can get if you can if you can have your battle happen in a canyon, then you're perfectly happy to do that. Yeah, the, the Swiss, you know, <laughs> right, right. That's that's that is Swiss history. <laughs> yep. Until everybody got sick of trying and they gave up. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then they were just like, yeah, yeah, we're just gonna hang yeah. out in our little our hole. Um. So at the Battle of Ravenna in 1512, the Spanish uh, reinforced a ditch with wagons covered with spikes to stop a charge of French knights. Uh, do you think that they would have seen this or drawn up this idea from Bellafortis? Uh, again, it's possible. Like, we de- Bellafortis definitely has a bunch of devices along those lines. Um, and I think there's even a, a page that specifically tells you that spikes are like the ultimate way to um, stop cavalry. Uh, I don't... I, 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 it's always hard to say whether someone was doing this because it was a good idea or they were doing it because they saw this book. But it's certainly something that anybody who read this book would be well, well acquainted with. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, um, no, definitely. <clears throat> so, and yeah, that was something, again, and I think partly we can go back to Nicopolis and say that a big disadvantage that, the, that, that led to the French defeat at that battle was the fact that the Turks had time to put in these um, emplacements of rows of spikes to break up the cavalry charges. Right. And so Kaiser took that lesson to heart and put it in a lot of his machines. Makes sense. But other people may have drawn the exact same lesson from that battle. Yeah. And, you know, wagons with spikes would be very similar to the spike emplacements that he that he recommends for field battles um, as just a way to inconvenience your enemy's nobility. And this would be a lot more fun if I could like pull up pictures to show examples. But yeah, go 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 look at the scans online. Yeah, we can we, probably we'll put something post in the some show notes pictures. for this. Yeah, yeah, we should definitely post uh, some of these cool pictures in the show notes. Oh yeah, and for sure. I should I I'll should I should mention I I think I didn't say maybe we'll get to this at the end, but everything I had to write about this is now up online for free, so you can also read through. And I have tons of pictures in my paper on Bellafortis. Yeah, um, including these spike tools yeah if you don't mind uh michael we'll, we'll put a uh a pdf on there uh from the sure. academia okay yeah that'd be great so the scuba diving equipment in Bellafort seems particularly fanciful um do we have any other evidence of them being used in history or appearing in works uh, from other authors uh we do see it in other others of these sort of books of curious inventions uh, I don't know of of any artifacts that survive. I remember that when they back when they did that documentary about Talhofer, 
um, they actually did an experiment of trying to build the diving suit. <clears throat> and their conclusion was yeah. it was plausible with medieval technology, but they had to modify it a bit. Um, particularly, they had a lot of trouble getting air into the suit for the versions that had big hoses um, that would bring air from the surface. Okay. So they had to try to figure out how to, like, they had to build a bellows device to pump air into right. it. He also has, like, a breathing bag version where I guess you just have a very small air supply in a sack that you, <laughs> that you try to suck air out of. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think that his, his uh, waterproof or airtight diving, bells, diving belts are a more plausible way to get an armored guy across a river than having a diving suit. Uh, but I'm not sure. History is full of all kinds of crazy things people did. So I would love to hear a story of yeah. somebody who tried to use this in warfare and succeeded. So isn't that, isn't this like, it? doesn't that kind of have a, its origin from them trying to copy Alexander the Great? Isn't that from uh, something that kind of stems from him or am I misremembering I, that? I haven't heard that. Alexander the Great had a diving suit? Yeah, so I think that if I'm not mistaken, this is... Uh, I gotta remember the name of the the battle here. Um, it's the the small island that's uh, right in the nook of uh, you know like the the Mediterranean off in the corner, Turkey. Um, it's not coming to me at the moment. Cyprus. But yeah, Cyp- it might have been Cyprus. The siege of Cyprus. Um, I think he he uh, he ended up having this sort of. You know, they built a long bridge that went all the way across, but in the course of, like, building the bridge that they had used diving suits. And so I think in, in some of the Alexander Chronicles, I'm not sure if it's Arian or, or where that comes from. Um, he might have. And I know, like, with Kaiser, Kaiser seems to have this fascination with Alexander, doesn't he? Like, he's yeah. he definitely has this, like, he's his heroic moniker or kind of like his, his paragon. Right. He, he I... A sub-analysis suggests that Alexander represents um, land warfare to Kaiser. Mm-hmm. Like, he was the ultimate expert in, in land warfare. I don't know if that extends to diving suits, but that, right. that certainly would be a, could be an, an inspiration for it. I've never heard of anyone actually discovering a diving suit that was constructed in this period, so the idea must have come from right. somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. It's uh, it's interesting. So, um, of all the implement and techniques described in Bellafortis, uh, which do you think is your favorite? Oh, um, the war wagons are pretty cool. I like I like the wacky stuff more than anything else. I mean, the the siege warfare is fine, but there the uh, some of the strange tools like. The exotic weapons, the strange crossbows, the he has um, very primitive firearms um, in different configurations. I also was really intrigued by his attempt to bring sort of magical ideas into the field of warfare. Um, yeah. I mentioned earlier that I've been studying um, the medieval magical, especially what they call learned magic, which is magic that gets written in books um, ever since John Chandler turned me on to this thing many years ago. Um, and he was apparently a true believer that this could be used to aid in warfare. And he doesn't have a lot of illustrations of magic, but he copies some of the popular magical treatises of the time and brings them in 
um, wholesale. And to someone like Kaiser, gunpowder would be just as magical as demon summoning. Um, right. You know, things like <laughs> magnets and, and gunpowder were examples of, of magic that, that was totally reliable, uh, much more than just... Um, well, we would, we, we would differentiate them as, as chemistry versus nonsense or versus superstition. But it was all the same to him. And I like and the, the ways those get mixed together are fascinating. Um, his ideas about things you can do with fire and pyrotechnics. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I just think that like just the, the way that the illustrations were executed in this time before modern ideas about perspective and so on get really interesting as well. So I yeah. can appreciate a lot of the mechanical drawings from that sense where they're trying to give you cross-section and profile at the same time and right. and expose details that wouldn't be visible. And it's just a really interesting approach to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let's, uh, before we go, um, let's talk about magic for just a second. So one of the things that, you know, like back in October, we did an episode on uh, illicit magic and torture for Halloween. But we've been looking a lot about Amorazzo's magic. So like, uh, you know, he, he clearly is drawing a summoning circle um, without chemical symbols on the inside. Do you know mm-hmm. of any good sources that we might be able to take a look at to start to uncover some of those magical symbols and start to figure out what those are? Um. So I, I can recommend to you some, uh, some secondary literature. I have been very disappointed to discover that the state of magical manuscript research is not nearly as advanced as HEMA manuscript research. So, <laughs> That's saying something. Like, right. So fi- finding... There's a lot of people who do broad surveys of topics, but like trying to find translations of specific manuscripts is almost impossible. They're just not out there. No, no one does that for some reason. Or even just you like need to start witch an hour, right? Clearly, <laughs> <laughs> um, but the, yeah, I mean, and also mm. tragically, because it's magic and doesn't actually achieve very much, we can't really build a HEMA discipline around it because it's mostly, <laughs> you know, saying words and drawing diagrams and wondering why nothing happened. I mean, um, Conrad Kaiser <laughs> would argue differently. Right, he did say that. <laughs> right. Well, so there's an, there's this was... an interesting... The, 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 the subject of magic, if I can go off on a tangent for a minute, mm, is really yeah, interesting please. because yeah, the, the question often arises of did people actually really believe in any of this magic stuff? Or why? how could people... Like, were they all charlatans? How could anyone think it was true? Clearly, once you start practicing it, you'll realize it doesn't work. And why would you then continue? Like, I hear this from people who who, uh, and not just about, like, historical, like, medieval magic, but even, like, more modern stuff. And there's a couple pieces to the understanding why someone who's educated would think that magic was a useful practice. Um, one of them is just that... Um, I could say that when I was in taking science classes in high school... I certainly did not achieve the expected outcome of every single experiment that I did, (laughs) you know, in my physical science class, right? Right. But I still believe that that I was supposed to, and I must have done something wrong. Otherwise, I would have achieved exactly what the teacher told me was expected, right? So there's a a piece of, of it all that is just like, well, if everyone tells you that it works your whole life, 
that and you and and when you try it, it doesn't work. Are you going to believe that the whole world is wrong, or you're just not very good at it? Um, and right. you start trying to think through. All right, well, maybe I didn't use fresh enough ingredients, or maybe I did this step wrong. Maybe I pronounced these words wrong. Like, there's a whole lot of things that could go wrong if magic were real that would result in not getting the outcome you expect, right? And the other piece yeah, yeah. Sure. is just confirmation bias, where a lot of magical um, practices were not designed to get concrete outcomes, but merely to affect the probability of things happening. So right. if, exactly. if you carry around a good luck charm and something good happens, then it's the good luck charm. And if something bad happens, well, I guess the magic wasn't good enough, or maybe I did it wrong, right? So you can look at it yeah. from both sides when it works or when you achieve, when an outcome happens, maybe by chance, that you were hoping for, then it worked and your magic is real. And when it didn't work, well, you clearly made a mistake. So there's a whole lot of space. I mean, I I don't know. I'm willing to to entertain the possibility that the probability of things improved through small magical forces that just pale in comparison to what we can do with science now, which really is just a new kind of magic. If all you're hoping for is that you're going to get a small edge, then you can certainly yep. see that or not see that, depending on what your perspective is, Who right? Knows? Um, but but th- this all leads to an environment in which somebody could practice magic their whole life and earnestly believe that it's real and that it works, um, and not ever receive any evidence that convinces them otherwise. Right. Um, and certainly yeah. there are things that they would consider magical, like magnets, for example, that they see as the occult properties of certain rocks, um, yeah. as opposed to we look at it and we can you know, have a whole electromagnetic theory about it. But to them, these were concrete examples, or when you mix together gunpowder and you get this magical substance um, right. through pure alchemy. Like These were things that, that unquestionably worked, right. and there were today also, we would just say things... that, well, clearly it's not magic. Right, and there are things that we today <laughs> consider magic, Right. Like uh, looking at horoscopes or, um, you know, astrology in general, that mm-hmm. they would have considered settled science. Like, right. That's kind of, you know, they, they, I mean, I mean you when, can argue uh, that. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I mean, you look at somebody like Pietro Monti, right. And the way that he talks about like the, the various humors and things like that, like that was, mm-hmm. I mean, you couldn't treat as a, as a doctor, you couldn't treat somebody without knowing their humors and their horoscope. Mm-hmm. Like that was, you had to know those things. We look at that today and we're like, wow, that's just, you know, whatever. I don't know how we perceive it as modern people. I guess we perceive it as like some sort of witchcraft or, you know, some sort of pseudoscience or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not settled science, which they did. Um, you know, that was one of the things that I thought was really fascinating. Uh, so at the University of Bologna, this, the students there had this, this thing where they kept, um, getting in fights with one another. <laughs> so they would have, they'd have these like intellectual debates and then they would eventually actually turn into like combat in the, in the streets where <laughs> they would, sure. they would start to settle things with sword and buckler and they would, you know, throw down. But some of these academic debates, um, you know, were around things that we would have considered, uh, like they would be like scientific issues. So, you know, they would be trying to just dis- have a discussion on a medicine, um, and you'd have somebody proposing new ideas that today we would think might be a little bit more relevant, but they would say, no, that doesn't match. It doesn't, you didn't bring up the humors once in this argument. Right. Let's go stab each other, you know, and it's, <laughs> it's really crazy. <laughs> right. Um, but you know, that 
we could argue that the entire field of astronomy arose from trying to do astrology better and yep. trying to refine right. the ability yeah. to do astrological work. Um, like a lot of our science owes debts to those early work. And the, I mean, there are still medical conditions that require bleeding today. Like we don't diagnose yep. people with having too much blood, but certainly they're like, it's a solution like that, that to certain problems, especially in cases yep. where the medicine is not available or people have, you know, contraindications. Like there's a whole lot of medical practice that's from, from medieval people that is, not used, not because it doesn't work, but because we have better ways of doing things. Exactly. But in extreme circumstances, when those things fail, sometimes the old ways are still brought up and doctors still know about them. Um, yeah, you we know, just you have better magic. <clears throat> and yeah, so <laughs> magic is such a, it's such a broad category that it's hard to paint it with a single brush. Yeah. And maybe we can't summon demons, but there's a whole lot of things that these magicians believed in that still echo into today. Um, and it, you know, it, maybe it's sad that we can't summon demons, but there's a lot of other stuff that they did, right? Like the arts of memory were considered part of magic where you would make your memory palaces and you would use these yeah. magical tools in order to do feats of memorization as a way to study other stuff better. Um, right. but they would add invocations of angels and stuff to, to the process that maybe aren't important, but the actual practice is still used by memorization experts today. Like, all of this stuff, like the, the things that worked, we just say, oh, that's not magical. But to them, it was. And that's why they right. believed in magic. <clears throat> Anyways, that's a little rant I have. There's a great book um, for really getting into the medieval mindset that I found that Greg Maley recommended to me. It's by C.S. Lewis. Um, it's called The Discarded Image. Um, and it's basically a distillation of a lecture series he gave at either Oxford or Cambridge shortly before he died, that was trying to, is basically an apologetic for the medieval worldview. So it's fascinating to see him take his apologetic skills and apply them to something he doesn't believe in, but really trying to explain to you how the way medieval people looked at the world actually made sense and was a reasonable way to look at the world, even though it's not the way we think about almost anything. But he kind of hmm. puts together this whole worldview piece by piece and shows you how it all fits together in a way that's kind of beautiful um, and in a very non-judgmental way that really helps understand it. So if anyone wants to dig into understanding the world the way they did, yeah, the discarded image, it's a, it's a short book too, but it's, cool. it's really, I think that's what it's called. Let me look at my shelf really quick. Uh, yeah, the discarded image by C.S. Lewis. Okay. Um, fascinating, fascinating book. Awesome. <clears throat> Well, nothing like finishing with magic, right? That's great. That's right. Magic yeah. and science. Or, yeah, you know, it's the same thing. Hand in hand. Well, we, I think we'll have to dig into this a little bit further. So maybe uh, maybe in, in a future episode, Michael, we can we can call on you again and, and just do nothing but talk about magic and really kind of nerd oh, out. I'd love that. That yeah. sounds great. Yeah, I, I remember awesome. reading, interestingly enough, the Assyrian belief in <coughs> disease came, was almost identical to our, our microbe theory. It's just that they identified it as demons rather than microbes. But hmm. Same basic idea. Sure. Yeah. That was fascinating. Um, if you want to read more about magic, the uh, University of Pennsylvania, I believe, has this whole series called Magic and History that's all these sort of deep dives, uh, scholarly deep dives into different kinds of magic. 
Um, and the one that I reference a lot for Bella Fortis is called Unlocked Books, which is specifically about manuscripts of magic. But there's like a whole book on talismans and a whole book on summoning rituals, and they've got tons of them. It's a really great series. That's going to be a, a good month when we do the magic month. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks, Michael. I really appreciate it. Um, it was a honor to have you on here, so uh, appreciate you coming and sharing your wisdom. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Thanks for on, Michael. It's good to have you. Yeah, And that concludes another episode of Le Arte del Arme, the Bolognese podcast. I want to thank Michael again for coming on and sharing his wisdom with us. Uh, really looking forward to our future conversations about Renaissance magic. Um, that's going to be fantastic. Uh, stay tuned for that. Stay saucy, my friends.